Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, April 16, 2015. Tonight is the anatomy of a case that was won in Broward County, Florida, and our special guest tonight is Patrick Genta, who was the lead attorney on that case at trial and with whom I was co-counsel. I am broadcasting live from a very warm Boynton Beach, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, and GAR, the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other people who may not even be aware of the effect that the housing crisis has had. And don't believe the stories that say that the number of foreclosures is going down. There are areas in the country where it is going down, and there are areas where it is going up. And that is because of management by the mega banks to keep it out of the national headlines. And we are accomplishing our mission here as more and more lawyers and judges and borrowers and homeowners are seeing that the usual opening remark by the attorney for the bank is nonsense. Your Honor, they say this is a standard foreclosure. There is no such thing as a standard foreclosure anymore. There once was. And if we use the same rules and the same standards that were used for foreclosures 20 years ago, we wouldn't have the problem in the, on the foreclosure docket that we have now. Judge Rodriguez in Broward County said it best a few months ago when he said that after the last four cases he had just heard, There was no such thing as a standard foreclosure anymore. The case that we are doing the anatomy on today is U.S. Bank versus First Club in Broward County. The case was the the trial was in January and the final order was in favor of the homeowners was rendered, I believe, on March 5th uh, last month. 
in the case is U.S. Bank as trustee, but they couldn't decide on whose behalf they were acting as trustee. Originally, the case was filed on behalf of J.P. Morgan Acquisition Trust Corp., and then somebody realized that entity had nothing to do with this deal. So then they substituted a remix trust name. And then later in the case, without leave of court, they started saying they were the trustee for the holders of certificates issued by the trust. And, of course, there was no effort to even introduce the trust certificates, which probably didn't exist anyway. So the trial consisted of the testimony of two witnesses, one from the plaintiff's side, although we never were able to quite nail down who the real plaintiff was, and one from the defense side uh, who was one of the homeowners. There was no witness representing U.S. Bank, no witness for the previous servicer who claimed to be servicing the loan. That was Chase Bank. And instead, they slipped in select portfolio servicing commonly known as SPS, which is a subsidiary of the Megabank Credit Suisse. So their sole witness was a guy who had only recently been hired, never worked for Chase, never worked for the trust, never worked for U.S. Bank or any trustee, nor had he had any contact with any of those entities. This is an example of what I am coming to call robo-servicing and robo-witnesses. I had a judge up in Tallahassee ask me about two years ago to explain or to get the other side to explain why the services were being shifted around like musical chairs. The answer really is that it's to confuse the court and to confuse defense attorneys. And it works, but it's working less and less and less. The answer to all this was that the trust never purchased loans. The new servicer, SBS, had never processed any payments from the borrower or to the creditor, who at the end of the trial, we still don't know who the creditor was. And the central issue uh, presented by the witness for SBS was the so-called boarding process in which they say a stringent audit is made of all of the data that was taken from Chase, the previous service. In fact, they were just inserting an entity that knew nothing, had no records other than what was supplied to them, all being self-serving documents that, if you really drill down, uh, could never have satisfied the requirements of being an exception uh, to the hearsay rule, namely the business records exception. Patrick Junta is one of the finest and most effective trial lawyers that I have ever known. His office is in North Broward on Federal Highway in Florida. Patrick has litigated many cases of diverse nature, proving that if you know how to try a case and you are intuitive in the courtroom, you can successfully prosecute or defend any claim. 
his first jury trial was defending a sign company that allegedly uh, put a sign in the wrong place, which resulted in a judgment for Patrick's clients, the defendants, in a case where he was only supposed to be second chair. But as luck would have it, the trial partner was unable to go, so Patrick had to step up and try his first case, and he won it. He does well at settlement negotiations, too, because unlike some lawyers, Patrick is not at all afraid to go to court, not afraid to pick a jury, not afraid of federal court, appellate court, or any other form. He's had 10 jury trials to verdict successfully um, where he has represented either the plaintiff or the defendant. Some cases were in personal injury, some in business litigation, some involving non-disclosure, fraud, and so forth. His firm, for which he became partner in 1990, also handled at the time plaintiff's foreclosure cases in the three-county area. You heard me right. Plaintiff's foreclosure cases in the South Florida area, in other words, representing parties that were foreclosing on homeowners. And, of course, there are many bench trials that he has concluded successfully, including foreclosure defense. Patrick Genta, welcome to the show. Thank you, Neil. Patrick, you have litigated all kinds of cases in all types of forums. What is it about foreclosure defense that you like? What I like specifically about the foreclosure defense is the challenge that it presents and the ability to prove that when your client is correct and that you've got a sound legal theory that can be pled, explained, and ultimately supported to a judge overcoming what they presume to be, uh, you know, the fact that, especially in foreclosure, it's presumed that just because your client doesn't pay means that the bank should win. And the challenge of overcoming that is what I enjoy most about the defense, because when you get to the end of the case and the judge enters the correct result, uh, in a word, you win, and that's very, very nice because that generally tends to provide a financial reward, including the recovery of your fees and your costs, as well as, in some cases, setting up the uh, other side for uh, tort action, which would be a wrongful foreclosure. So you like to win? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think were the most important factors in winning the first club case? I think the the somewhat of the the arrogance of the plaintiff in the way in which they proceeded with the case, not realizing in other words, we we knew going in because we had pre his corporate representative's deposition back in October of last year. And, by the way, the same corporate representative that was disclosed on the eve of the trial that was previously set, which is a tactic that the defense or that the plaintiffs always use 
on this case, our judge was excellent and said, no, you can't do that, and uh, we're going to continue the case, and then he ordered you know, the depositions be taken. But from that point, uh, I think we learned enough that they weren't going to be able to prove their case. Uh, but for some reason, they insisted. And by the way, they also took our client's deposition, which uh, shed light on the fact, which was exactly what the judge found, that not only did she have proof that she made all the payments uh, up to the date of their alleged default, but that they actually posted a payment on the date they sent out the default letter. So there was clearly evidence in their own business records and in our records that uh, supported our theory that she was never in default in the first place. And, you know, knowing that, they decided to proceed to trial anyway. I thought it was interesting in that trial that the judge picked up on her own, the senior judge, that there were things in the uh, records which showed the processing of transactions in and out of the account for escrow that didn't add up, didn't make any sense. I don't have the tr the transcript right in front of me, but my recollection was that there was a direct quote by the judge to the effect of Chase, which was the prior servicer, manipulated the escrow accounts, thus creating the default. Right. I thought that was interesting in a in a world where not too long ago, just a few years, you couldn't have uh, uh, found a judge that would ever have thought that to be possible, much less included in their in their own comments. Right, and so, and the fact the fact that she let, that we you know in other words we could have objected that he didn't qualify for the business records objection. And, you know, you can object on every single thing, and, and a lot of people expect, you know, lawyers do that. But in this particular case, knowing what we knew, it was better to let the records in without objection and then turn around and use the records, which the judge did also, against them, meaning they weren't trustworthy. Exactly. So the, uh, the judge found that the boarding process – was admissible as evidence, but in the end found that it was not credible evidence. Correct. Um, and there was a moment in the trial where the judge made a comment about the witness's inability to answer a simple question, and the question was, what was the default date? Uh, Correct. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, the the question, I believe it was on cross-examination, and I was asking the witness what date the default had occurred, and, he's, and he didn't know. And then I asked him if he could look at his business records that he had supposedly testified earlier that they boarded them and that they verified them and checked them twice. So these records were so accurate that when he stared at them, he couldn't tell and actually testified to three different dates, none of which were the correct date or the alleged date that they had in their, in their notice. Then the judge, picking up on it, asked if she could question the witness on her own. And uh, 
usually when that occurs, the judge is looking for some specific things. And this particular judge is, is does well at, uh, at that, as well as some of the other judges that we have on our foreclosure bench. Uh, when she questioned him, he sat there for, and she noted on the record, Sir, it's now 11 and a half minutes, and you still are unable to provide me with a simple answer to a simple question. What is the default date? So I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought also that it almost became comical when he he said, well, it was July 1st. No, it was August 1st. No, it was September 1st. No, it was October 1st. He really didn't know. And one of the comments I thought that was very telling from the judge was that the witness himself was a credible witness, but he wasn't given credible information to be able to answer the simplest question about a foreclosure case. Well, so, that's that, that's what yeah, they do. They, yeah, they they don't they put multi levels of servicers in there because they don't want this. Because if the actual servicer that produced the actual record came into court, they would lose because they they would have to tell the truth and they couldn't testify to their to to their practices. So by putting in these subsequent servicers, they insulate and shield you from being able to attack those questions. And the presumption is that the records are accurate, so that's the difficulty. You've got to attack the trustworthiness. In this particular case, we were able to do that. What are some of the mistakes that you see happening in court these days by foreclosure defense lawyers? Uh, just arguing too many defense theories that aren't uh, I would say sound or not presenting the evidence in a manner in which uh, not presenting the defense in the manner that the judge can understand it. Sometimes you've, you've got to uh, you know, go slow and explain it step by step and support it with case law decisions and recent decisions and just a you know an analysis of it. And I think that a lot of the defense attorneys do not prepare properly, do not do enough discovery, or are in it just to stall as opposed to be in it to win it. And typically throughout my whole career, if I take a case on, I expect to be, you know, take it through a jury, if, if it's a jury trial, or through a trial, if it's a bench trial. Do we win all the cases? No. But, you know, you prepare and you go forward, and you put your best case forward. If you're not prepared to do that, and you're just trying to skate by, you're going to lose. I've heard you make the comment that attorneys can uh, very often miss the point that the bank has to prove their case. Well, that's that's absolutely correct. They have to put on a prima facie case, and that's where we move for involuntary dismissal at the conclusion of their case, and many times do not even have to put on a witness. Uh, and they have, that's, the, that's their burden. And what they try to do is they try to shift that burden and confuse the judge and somehow say it's the homeowner's burden to prove that they're not the holder or the owner or in possession or the transfers, and then just flat out wrong. What advice do you have for attorneys that are involved in foreclosure defense or looking to get involved? 
I think that they should read some of the decisions that have come out from the various uh, district courts of appeal, and they also should uh, become familiar with uh, bankruptcy laws and debtor-creditor relationships, uh, thorough knowledge of commercial paper, UCC, uh, Article 3, Article 9, and uh, also uh, try some cases. They don't necessarily, some of, some of the personal injury attorneys make excellent foreclosure defense attorneys only because they've had uh, experience in trying cases. And and or uh, come to, go to trial with a lawyer or go down there at one thirty or nine o'clock in the morning, pretty much any day of the week and watch a contested case, and see what you know some of the attorneys are doing and what the judges are concerned with. You learn a lot by by you know watching and observing. I've often told people who are looking for a lawyer. Uh, to do exactly the same thing. Go down and watch the lawyers and see how they're doing and pick one that looks like he's winning or she. Uh, what problems do you see in the system in terms of processing foreclosure claims and defenses? The system is geared to move the cases through, period. And while you can get some good results, the the, what I see as a flaw in the system is that the in the past, up until very recently, it seems as if in a foreclosure docket, um, there's no application of the rules of civil procedure. They seem to be stretched or bent in the foreclosure arena uh, as opposed to just general civil law in, in, in general. And I think part of that's got to do with the fact that there's just so many cases that they were under orders, you know, move these through and close them out, and and that's compromised some of the due process rights of defendants. Now, what what a lot of attorneys did and a lot of, of uh, litigants did is they filed so many defenses to a case that it, it just kind of undermined the credibility. And it's taken a while, but then there are those that present good, accurate, and, you know, I mean, at least they can plead them as a quality defense, and the courts will look at those seriously. And in those cases, you're going to get your day in trial. Uh, but I, I think that just the perceived notion that if you don't pay, you don't stay, and let's move on. Next case, that seems to be the biggest flaw I see. What uh, uh, do you see as the, in the first club case? What do you see as the moments that made the real difference in tactics and uh, uh, the switching in midstream? The turning point. Probably when the witness that they called took over in 11, 11 and a half minutes and, and testified to four different um, dates of default. All right, and what what were you doing when uh, or thinking about when that was happening? At that point, I just wanted to get my my thought was let's not 
let's not ask so many questions. And, I mean, we already, I think we already, at that point I observed the judge and I knew what our client was going to testify to and what her record showed. And we had them there and we had them ready to go. So at that point my my tactics were to, instead of present every possible question in cross-examination and go through everything that there was to go through, didn't need it. They weren't able to, they, you know, the judge, you know, their records were not credible at that point, and I just had a gut feeling that we were going to win. And, in fact, you stopped me from asking more questions. Correct. You you have a tendency, as a lot of lawyers do, and there's nothing wrong with it, but you some you know you can go overboard thinking that you've got to beat every possible you know raise every possible thing or you haven't been effective. And that's that's not true. I was taught early on that you don't need five theories; you just need one that works. <laughs> that's right, and I can speak from personal experience in that trial, for example, where. We get carried away when we think we're on a rip, and uh, uh, there are times, which I know well, after almost 40 years of practice, that you just shut up, and uh, it was good that you cut me off, uh, because we basically had essentially won, or you had basically won, and at that point, we could only do damage. If you ask one too many questions, sometimes you open up a door and you go down a path that you just don't want to be on. Right, right. And and it happens. It happens a lot. And, and uh, it doesn't mean you're not going to win, but it makes it so much more difficult. And uh, at at that point, I, I think I even recall, I, I turned to you and, and you were questioning Ms. Persglove, and she had just finished her, her testimony, and you looked at me like you wanted to ask, you know, 15, 20 more questions. And I think I, I said, no, cut it off, done. And you did. <laughs> so, okay. So what do you think are the lessons to be learned? We only have about two minutes left uh, from the from the first love case. What what are people, what can people take away from the, the that particular win. I think they they could they should walk away knowing that uh, that the that the defenses do actually work, and that with the right lawyers, uh, and uh, you know based on the facts, that they can win a foreclosure case. They shouldn't walk away with being frustrated that you know that they're going to lose the house anyway, and that. That defending it somehow is is you know a waste of time or a waste of money. Well, I agree with that. Obviously, I've devoted eight years of my life to it. Um, by the way, um, anybody who wants to get in touch with Patrick, uh, his main telephone number is nine five four nine two eight zero one zero zero nine five four nine two eight Zero one zero zero, and you can get through to him through my customer service numbers. And I would uh, uh, tell people to have a little patience with us. We are having some uh, changes in personnel, uh, additions and subtractions, and and movement. And uh, 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 
the good news for a lot of people is that I've joined in with handling the volume of calls, uh, and uh, people seem to be very pleased with the fact that they actually got me on the phone rather than somebody else. But if you call Patrick at, at his number, uh, uh, you'll uh, be able to uh, get in touch with him. And uh, uh, Oh, that's what I want to do, uh, do before uh, we cut off. Patrick, you also provide litigation support to attorneys in, in other states, correct? Correct. So that, that means that you will help them develop their theories, do their memos, and even their pleadings, depending upon the circumstances. Depending upon the circumstances and, and keeping in mind that I'm not familiar with the laws outside of our jurisdiction, yes. But yes, but oh, some of uh, yeah, absolutely, because some of what what they do in other states is it. the same thing we do in this state. We're done. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to the Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call... 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.